Welcome, everybody. We are back. We are the Collar and Elbow Wrestling Podcast. I am Kenny Oak, joined, as always, never fails, by the Chris B. Quick Harris. Chris, how you doing today? I'm ecstatic. Yes. That's Episode what I like 42 on the line tonight. We're oh. defending it. Big match we're doing. <laughs> Love the angle that we're Huge doing. Huge angle. Big, Big payoff coming. Mess. Podcast on a forklift match. Yes. Tonight, Bubs. Judy Bagwell on the referee angle. I got a lot of stuff. You're playing yes. face. I'll do the heel angle, and we're just going to go hard. Let's do it. Uh, of course, with all this talk about people being on forklifts or things being on poles, we are, of course, talking about WCW <laughs> towards the end of the 90s. And more specifically, we are doing a pay-per-review where we go back and watch classic pay-per-views from WCW, WWE, and ECW. And tonight, we are talking Spring Stampede 1998, the biggest, the baddest, no bull. So, Bubs, I'm excited for this because our very first episode, way back, 41 episodes ago, was a paper review. Like almost two years ago we, now. We did, we've done several of them. We've we put off the angle for a bit to do some other stuff, some topic shows and and previews, basically. But this is a great throwback. We're going to review a very significant pay-per-view, although the Spring Stampede yes, itself it is not a large pay-per-view for WCW. But as far as storylines, build up to and afterwards, this one has a lot in it. I'm glad you picked it. So very good pick on you. Appreciate Thank that. You. Um, the card on paper looking good as well. Now we'll talk about some of the details because we're going to go through this from beginning to end. But Bubs, we haven't done it in a while. So let's tell the folks how we do these these paper reviews. What was your approach to watching this one and giving it some analytical thought? Yes. Yeah, so uh, when I was going into deciding which one we were going to do, I just you have to think about what was the hottest time in professional wrestling. And that was, of course, late 1997 through 1998. Uh, was really one of the hottest, if not the hottest times in at least mainstream for professional wrestling. Uh, and so with Spring Stampede 1998, this was kind of the, this was when the Goldberg push was reaching its climax. This was when the NWO uh, was beginning to jump the shark, where they were now looking to split off into two separate entities with Hogan and Nash leading uh, both separate entities, and this was the pay-per-view, both the lead-up and the aftermath, with this being the catalyst to all of that stuff happening. So this was really the, probably the most significant pay-per-view of 1998, in my opinion, for WCW, and really the future uh, of WCW. No, I completely agree. Goldberg comes into this at 73-0, and 0, I think is what he was at the time. He was in the in, 70s for sure. Yeah, and... That goes on to do great things for WCW. So he's in the mid-card version of himself at this point in uh, in early 98. A lot of big names, he was though. so over. Super oh over. Oh, my God. He was so over. Crowd gets into this. We got big names. We have great storylines and matchups. We have talked a lot and at length, especially about Booker T and Chris Benoit's feud. This one here. My, my favorite feud in WCW history. Right. This We're going to talk world TV title here. Very good match. We got big names, Kurt Hennig, 
We got Rick Rude out here. We got the Bulldog. Some of these guys that did work before got and the after. Disciple? We got some. We're gonna talk. Don't cheat out the disciple. No, no. We got a lot of guys in here who have who made their name already in early WWF in the 90s and guys that even come back to WWF after this short time later because this was still a time where going back and forth was moderately acceptable because it was still, I guess there was less heat between the companies even though there was the war still happening. So Bulldog shows up on SmackDown, you know, a year later and it's not a big deal. And he was in WWF prior to this in, in 97. So a lot of stuff, a lot of big names. Of course, the NWO thing is is big news because they had been yeah. the hottest thing. And it took center stage here. Like NWO storyline really was, was the main focus of this paper. Every match, I think. Every match. They they if if they weren't plugging that, they were plugging at least the main event because it had Savage in it and he was a very significant part of that split and of this storyline. Yeah. So absolutely right. This being a catalyst, even though it's not a major pay-per-view, it ends up being very significant remembering it now as a, as what happens afterwards, Bubs. And then the uh, really the lead-up to this pay-per-view, uh, the main focus, of course, was on Hollywood Hogan and Kevin Nash. Was there a riff in the NWO? And that's really what the announcers have for, for weeks leading up to it and, and the pay-per-view night itself. There was talk about, you know, the NWO is imploding. We thought maybe that the NWO was going to go away after this. Uh but yeah, there was definitely issues going on with Hogan and Nash. Uh, Nash had said that if he got the baseball bat first, that he was going to attack all four guys. Um, he can't do math because that means he was going to kind of attack himself. <laughs> but um, he alluded to you know not feeling bad going after Hogan. And so, and we'll talk more about what happens with that once we get uh, to that particular match. But that was really the main focus going into this pay-per-view. But you had some other uh, big kind of storylines. You had uh, Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner had just split up. So Scott Steiner just joined the NWO, and he was Big Papa Pump working with uh, Buff Bagwell. Uh, You had... What else was going on? Chris Jericho had really started to flourish in his heel yes. um, persona. He had just ended his feud with uh, Dean Malenko when he became the man of a thousand and four holes. One thousand and four. Yes. And, of course, Booker T and Chris Benoit continued their amazing feud that they had uh, for the TV title. Uh, I do believe this came after the Best of Seven series. I, I think, think the was. Best of Seven series led to Booker T winning – uh, TV title. I'm gonna have to go back and, but yeah, they they could not put on a bad match with each other to save no. their lives. And there's also just to give context to how big the NWO was. Everyone, not every match in here is, has an NWO member in it, but there, it seems like every other match was somebody representing the NWO. And when it comes to even some of these these bigger name guys like. When you research how big the NWO was it at certain times, it's nearly like up to almost 300 people in, yeah. in, in size. And that's just ridiculous. That's one of the reasons I think you and I talked in a very negative light towards that in, one of, in a show we did yes. a long time ago. So maybe too much. And which is something is... I've been saying about the Bullet Club over the last kind of year and a half, almost two years, is that they've kind of just been – they've been growing too much. You know, yes, it, it it's a cool kind of story. 
Um, it's a cool faction to want to be a part of, but certain things need a little more exclusivity. And NWO and Bullet Club kind of have the same kind of parallel paths where Bullet Club is, you know, it's kind of making wrestling cool again, mm-hmm. uh, just like the NWO did. But too much leads to kind of um, an oversaturation and people just lose interest quicker. Right. And you, you brought this up earlier. We're seeing a very similar storyline now between Cody Rhodes and Kenny Omega between splits of key personnel within that. Yes. And that's exactly what happens here to the NWO. And of course that leads to some success actually, but um, overall did not work out in the grand scheme of things. But um, Bubs, I'm ready to get into this. We got uh, 10 matches on the card. So if you're ready, we can break this down. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm 100% ready. Let's do it. All right, now the first thing, I, I got to tell you this, something I don't like seeing, I don't like seeing Perry Saturn with hair. Got to put it out there. <laughs> no. Don't like seeing it. It didn't look it good. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look normal. And this was a, I'm not sure how long he had it, but prior to this and after this. It was way too long, too. For It was in that like weird middle stage where it's not like, long hair where you can wet it and you know kind of make it look cool it was like that odd 13 year old uh (laughs) kid that just lets that is in the process of growing out their hair and it just looks ridiculous yeah i didn't like it 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 took me a minute to even recognize him when he was walking down with (laughs) with kidman that that was indeed perry saturn but i just putting that out there because it was throwing me off a bit here but but yeah bubs we got him versus goldberg 73 and yes. at the time coming leading off the card i like that right because you know i'm big into, into card structure you know this so goldberg's super over let's have him come out in the opening match here against perry saturn right yeah absolutely goldberg was the most over person possibly on that roster not possibly he absolutely was uh, which led to how fast he was just rising up the card, which mm-hmm. led to, you know, what happens the next night on Nitro. But, you know, one thing I would like to add is that, you know, Raven's Flock, it was it was my favorite, me and my brother's favorite stable at the time. Yeah. You know, I was never really big into, like, the main event scenes of WWF or WCW. I loved, always loved what was going on in the mid-card. And I really, we attached ourselves to Raven's Flock. and Like Sick uh, Boy? Yes, but Kidman. Kidman was my Kidman favorite. Kidman was the dude, right? The seven-year seven itch was just my favorite move. Um, and I honestly thought that he didn't bathe for like seven, seven <laughs> you, you years. You believed the storyline. I believed it. I was like eight, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so something interesting they did here in this match was they gave Perry Saturn the ability to kind of make Goldberg look a little weak at times. This This match goes about eight minutes, and Perry Saturn gets his work in here on Goldberg and the announcers weren't, they didn't shy away from saying that Goldberg's having to do a little bit more here. Perry Saturn was getting insignificant move sets. So it didn't lead to anything. It's, it wasn't by any means a push for Perry Saturn, but interesting enough that Goldberg had been squashing people for probably 73 wins prior to this. But now here at the spring stampede, they kind of show his not vulnerabilities or weaknesses, but they make him earn it a little bit more. Uh, it it definitely showed some vulnerability, but not in the way of you're exploiting his weaknesses to kind of bring him back down to reality. Because in the end, he just kind of just uses his power, so oh, something yeah. snaps, and he just he just does this thing against Perry. His his exploder suplexes that he would do, where he just his release suplexes on Perry Saturn, that he would just send them flying, were just a thing of beauty uh, when he caught him. And put him in the jackknife. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty cool move. 
But Jack yeah, Hammer. they Jack Hammer, not the Jack Knife. My bad. Hanging, hanging out with Kevin Nash. Been there. Well, I, well, I was thinking because you know the previous week, uh, Sting had told WCW officials to reinstate the Jackknife powerbomb because yeah. that move had gotten banned. So, but I've been doing too much research. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Goldberg. They showed that he can be vulnerable, but that he can overcome. Mm-hmm. Which is something that all baby faces need to show right. that they can be vulnerable, but that in the end they always overcome. And that's kind of what I saw with this match. Right, and it wasn't it wasn't too long. It was something longer than we had seen from Goldberg. Kidman, he makes his efforts into interfering with the match as well. But as expected, especially for you know creating the streak and making Goldberg the most over face for sure, he gets the win here to to kick off the pay per view in a in a pretty decent match. There was good stuff. It's always great to see Goldberg's power oh, yeah. on display. I'd, I'd definitely give the match like a C plus. You know, it, it wasn't bad. Goldberg definitely held his own. He definitely didn't look polished in the ring, but just his style, the crowd's always going to eat it up. So it worked out for him. Now on to the next one, Bubs. Let's talk about Eddie Guerrero for a second. He's not he's not in, love directly involved in the match, but Eddie it. sucks chance the moment he and Chavo are down at ringside. The only time you will ever hear Eddie sucks chance. Go back and watch Spring Stampede <laughs> 1998 to hear some wrestling history. It was great. Eddie played the heel, the overbearing uncle, just so well yeah. for poor Chavo. And Ultimo Dragon and Chavo are two... Uh, extremely talented wrestlers, two very polished cruiserweights, and it, it was just a really good match with a pretty interesting story going on in the background. Right, and the mo- the second move set that I think they did, the second transition into some Irish whips into the rope, I saw Ultimo Dragon looking very much like Kalisto, and Kalisto looking very much like <laughs> Ultimo Dragon. Obviously, from a size standpoint as well, but just from how they they move around in the ring, I've never gotten into the Kalisto story as much. But I imagine that he did some of his ring work and his style off of Ultimo Dragon. Just because I mean, they look so similar, so I couldn't help but notice that as soon as the match started. Ultimo Dragon was another one of kind of our favorite. Uh, wrestlers in the Kenny Oak household. Uh, his his dragon sleeper was, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite moves. I loved when he would do the surfboard. Uh, that was definitely a cool move to see as a kid. But, yeah, I love the Ultimo Dragon. And, you know, Eddie Guerrero just – I can't say enough. Just no matter what he's given, he excels at it. And he was given the story, and he just ran with it. Right, as much of this as this match was very good ring work between the two, another half of it was Eddie Guerrero's antics outside the ring, as well as yelling at Chavo to get on him and all kinds of stuff, and giving him motivation through you know yelling and cursing at him, basically. And Chavo looked very good in the ring. I like Chavo. I always have. I thought his styles very very watchable and kind of fun fun to watch as with the dragon here and uh, the match was pretty good as well but i was more taken over by eddie guerrero's antics and his heel persona that i mean i love him more as a face obviously because i mean rarely do you like you said hear him be booed or or hated on because he's just way too good but um he was given this and it definitely worked out and the storyline was just as good as the match i think yeah didn't wasn't the story that they had wrestled each other Eddie won and because of that Chavo had to kind of do whatever Eddie told him. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so, but but to Chavo's credit, they they built him as like this this face. Uh, no matter what Eddie tried to get him, what kind of heel tactic Eddie tried to get him to do, Chavo refused to do it. Uh, he ultimately lost, but he gained a lot of respect from the fans. Yeah, and uh, it, it definitely was because he was he was new at this time. Uh, he needed to get over in some way, and this was a good way to get him over as a face. And the match ended with your favorite move, the Dragon Sleeper. It was over yeah. after, I think, about 10, 10 or 11 minutes. It was long enough. Good for what well, it was. It was almost 12 minutes, Bubs. Was it? Okay, so right in there. Good, yeah. good match. Um, Eddie Guerrero, though, that's my dude. So, yes. this, Now, right after this, this is when the card kind of picks up for me, and at least for the moment. And we're talking about the world TV title here, Bubs. Booker. One of the best championships it really was. It was so well defended, and there was a very good storyline going into this about how the time limit draw had been getting <laughs> the ten get, minute time, yeah, time the, limit. Yeah, the, the, the TV title has a ten minute match <laughs> limit prior to this, and there had been some draw matches leading up to this between as and even the announcers were giving cre- uh, credit to Benoit, saying he was pound for pound the best wrestler in the world, and mm-hmm. all three of them were were believing that, and it was very good, very good build up for him and Booker T. This was just part of his rise, Bub, from where he started as part of the teamwork with his brother and then moving up this mid-card. He was, I love the the rise that they gave Booker T and big-time over guy. And I loved his music. I loved his pyro. I loved his look. And I love this match. He Booker T had three finishing moves. He did. He had the Harlem hangover, the missile drop kick, and the scissors kick. Well, actually, yeah. he had four. He had the, scissor four. Kick, the standing side kick. Yep, the one he won the match with, yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't using the bullet so, too much at this time. Although No, so that would it wasn't have been five. Move. Yeah, had he used it a lot. Man. But that the standing but, side kick, the the Harlem hangover from the top rope, a lot of this man, talk about an athletic. The guy, missile right? drop kick. Yeah, missile drop kick was given a lot of credit too. So guy who can beat you from the top rope, beat you from the, the standing position, big he's big as shit too. He's like a six foot five dude. So I mean I'm gloating over Booker T so much. This match was very good. Yes, absolutely. And the thing with, with these two, uh, me and my brother, Chris Benoit was always growing up my favorite wrestler of all time. Of course, because of circumstances, I've definitely changed my stance on that. But uh, my brother loved Booker T. So this this extended rivalry between the two was just a point of contention uh, between us. And Booker T always seemed to get the upper hand yeah. on Chris Benoit. Uh, but, I mean, honestly, Booker T had... Like, his floor was the ceiling. Like, that's how good he was. And his ceiling was just in the stratosphere. Like, right. he he had more potential than really anyone in that time frame. Like, in terms of potential, Booker T is probably, like, this generation's, you know, Seth Rollins. Or that generation's Seth Rollins. Mm-hmm. Someone who just continues to work hard, get better, and their potential is limitless. Yeah. And so that's... Because of that work ethic, that's what made these matches always so entertaining. And as soon as this match got going, I started thinking about something. Something we really don't talk about. I think the internet doesn't talk about enough, maybe due to controversy or due to just not wanting to talk about it. But Booker T is probably the most successful African-American wrestler in professional wrestling history. And of it's all brought, time. Of, oh, yeah, of all time. And it's it's really not talked about too much, especially when we start talking about world title reigns for for African Americans, and they, everyone throws in the Rock, right? Because he's yes. he's half. And then we talk about Book, or Booker T gets credit, Mark Henry also gets credit, but 
Booker Ron T's Simmons right. gets credit for being Simmons the first. Simmons is the first, absolutely. But yeah. Book, Booker's his resume kind of stands apart because he's done so much from the ground up work to being a, a nothing through a tag guy, through a mid level guy, to a multiple time world champion that he really should be talked about. I think more almost in the underrated category for me. Now that I'm thinking about it a lot, he's just he was just so good and he was destined to be one of the best. I mean, the thing about you want to talk about someone that is decorated. Booker T was a four-time uh, WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, I guess five-time altogether after he won the WWE five-time uh, World five Heavyweight time. Championship. Uh, he he won the television title six times. He was the U.S. Champion. He was a ten-time WCW. Tag team champion. That's just all in WCW. Right. You go to WWE, and he was the you know WCW champion. So he was a six time six time champion. champ. Yep. Uh, at the end of it, he was a WWE tag team champion, hardcore champ. He he won it all. He was the ninth Grand Slam champion mm-hmm. in WWE history. If you know anyone, he's one of not just the most decorated African American wrestler of all time ever. If yeah. he he might be the most decorated wrestler. Of mm-hmm. all time, when it comes to titles, and right. and we're big when it comes to titles and legacy and resume, and is there a resume bigger than than his? That's a great question because we start adding up all these titles, reigns, and adding over time how many have been accomplished through different companies and different decades and different versions of belts and whatever you want to call it. He's he's someone who I think I've even overlooked, and I've been a big fan of his forever. Not that it's a point to his wrestling ability, but when I was playing like SmackDown versus Raw and or Here Comes the Pain and all those things like Booker T was my guy that I'd wrestle with yes. in those video games because Because of the bookend. I love the bookend. Bookend, Spin a Rooney and his axe kick, scissors kick were just They just make too, it so brutal in those games. Yes. And I just <laughs> I just loved it. And then you add in the guy who I think is probably the number three greatest technical wrestler of all time, Chris Benoit. These matches and you gloat over them enough, I don't have to, the the series that they went through and then this match here it's great to see him in the ring, and I think they could have done it for longer if they wanted. But yeah, they, this was the longest match of the card, rightfully so. Yeah, uh, you say Benoit, you, you count him as the third mo- uh, best technical wrestler. Give me your uh, your other two. Oh, I think Ric Flair for sure. If we're talking technicalness, and then technical, okay, yeah, and then it's always going to be a toss up whether I consider Shawn Michaels' wrestling ability, technical ability, or just raw entertainment. And then Chris Jericho falls somewhere within there. So, really? so, so no Bret Hart. You don't have Bret Hart no, on that list. Bret Hart is close behind, but I was never I, I was never a big fan of his. So okay. I, I wasn't into his character too much. I think Owen would actually be a better technical wrestler than he would if we're talking technical ability only. Then Owen's going to be okay. better than him. So, so, me, so you think Owen's more technical and Bret's more on the entertainment side? Yeah, Bret would go down if we're putting if we're ranking them in any of this professional wrestling structure entertainment. He's going to go far yeah. above Owen, but if we're talking just ring work alone, I'm going to put Owen leagues ahead of Bret for sure. But I, I like no, I no one in the modern time. What's that? No one in the modern time would kind of crack your top three, maybe top five. I don't want to say Daniel Bryan, but he's close up there, so he's <laughs> he's creeping up there. You're trying to lead me into something there, but um, great match here by Benoit and Booker T. Bucks. <laughs> yes, and, um, a bit of a controversial was. ending. You want to talk about that ending? Uh, yeah, you, you have the good old-fashioned ref bump uh, going he took, on. He took the axe kick. <laughs> he took the axe kick. 
Um, no, or was it the standing sidekick he took? No, the finish was the sidekick. The finish was the sidekick, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the good old ref bump, and then Benoit <laughs> gets him in the in the cross face. Yeah. And then Did he Booker tap? T looks like he... he I, oh, I don't you know. know. I don't know. It, it looked like he might have tapped, but he definitely got to the rope. Right. And, um, but yeah, it was just silliness uh, towards the end. You got to keep both people looking strong. Got to make them both look like they can win, which WCW was always kind of good at that. And for some reason, Chris Benoit always got the benefit of that kind of booking. Even in WWE, he, he was always booked really strong. People don't realize. People think you know he, he was buried a lot, but not really. He was booked very strong. He won a lot of matches, and the matches that he lost, always it was dubious. Right. Finish, finish is very important. This match, it finished well. Uh, Benoit doing a bit of a heel type of move by pulling the referee into the axe kick, which is what he did when they finally showed the replay. You could see it that way, but it's a great way to they could continue the feud with this. You can also keep Benoit looking strong because the crowd was super into the match for both guys. But um, Booker does retain in a very good match, certainly the longest, and uh, I was I was entertained until yes. the next match at least. Well, the the next match is the first NWO uh, match or first match that involves anyone from the NWO, but definitely not the last is like every yeah. other match except for two or three don't have uh, NWO, but it's Kurt Henning with Rick Rude uh, versus the British Bulldog with Jim, the Anvil Nightheart. Just looking at this, like this is, this is some hall of fame stuff right here. This is Bulldog versus Mr. Perfect. This would be great to see depending on, uh, you know, what year or what era we're talking, but this version of both mm -hmm. of them, not not too not too uh, fun to watch. The storyline was no. was grody. We had uh, Rick Rude. He was <laughs> handcuffed to the anvil outside. Rude looking, and the angry. anvil is just—he's looking bad. He's looking rough, looking coked out of his mind. Honestly, looking pretty chunky as well. Rude wearing the suit, typical for him during this era as well. He keeps trying to interfere in the match. Um, I'm surprised it went the five minutes that it did. Um, good, good mid card stuff, I guess, just to keep the fans kind of guessing for what's going to happen. But I didn't like any of it, Bubs. I don't know where you're sitting on it. No, no, I absolutely thought this match was a stinker. Um, I was excited that it was, it didn't even last five minutes. Uh, Rick Rude in the suit, he he just was not looking good at this time. Uh, looking looking pretty gaunt, and you know it was about almost it was a year to the day, a, a year and a day from from this pay per view that he passed away. So, mm. uh, def definitely tough to see Rick Rude in this kind of light. But this match was a stinker. I hate saying it with all the people that were involved. Yeah, but it, it wasn't good at all. So with that, uh, Kurt Henning's going to go ahead and win by controversial fashion, of course, and we can move on to some more entertaining <laughs> Virgil stuff. was there. God. Vir Virgil. Well, that wasn't his name. He doesn't go by Virgil. That's true. But That's he was all I remember him in as. the match. I know. Uh, let's talk about Chris Jericho. Jericho yes. really working some heel character. He had developed himself now at this point that he was booed out of the building, Bubs, at yes. times. Because he's, yeah. he's incessant and... And whiny sounding, mm -hmm. and this that that's just that was his persona. That you know, Chris Jericho is someone that just constantly evolved himself, and that kind of character worked perfectly uh, to to gain the ire from the crowd. Yeah. So, Prince Iakea as a challenger, 
not maybe not what you want to see. I mean, it's a lower level. He's not a cruiserweight. Is he not? Too, is he, is he, is he, he looks way too. He he was previously the the TV champ, and I think he was yeah. the U.S. champ also before that. Um, but yeah, I like Prince Iakea. Okay. Um, the you know, artist formerly known as the Thomas. artist formerly known as Prince Iakea is what I remember him right. most fondly as. But yeah, I mean, he he was he was a decent. He was definitely you know, a B kind of player. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could put him in any kind of feud with anybody and he'll, he'll do his part, but mm-hmm. the, the match was okay. It, it didn't was. really do it for me. Um, Chris Jericho winning was good. Um, that, that lion tamer is brutal though. It is. The match went back and forth pretty well. Iakea can hold his own for sure. They had a couple spots where it looked like some finishes were going to happen in favor of Iakea to get the crowd into it. The crowd was into this one. Um, regardless of, of that, but um, getting Jericho over for sure. He even mentions Dean Malenko in his entrance, and I, they do stuff yes. even the weeks leading after this towards the Dean Malenko angle. Great way to keep getting heat on Jericho. I love the match, though. It was certainly watchable, and Jericho winning the way he does via Lion Tamer is always, always good for me, bubs. Yes, Chris Jericho just wants you to want him, okay? Yeah, just want me. That's yeah. all he was looking for. He, just, you got it. He just wants you to want him. Now, moving on from that match, uh, we'll move on to another uh, NWO uh, match here. Mm-hmm. You had Rick Steiner and the total package, Lex Luger, going up against Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell. And just recently, Rick and Scott had uh, parted ways. They, I think they were tag team champs, and then Scott cost them the title by turning on Rick. Uh, um and and the storyline leading up to this was that anytime Rick would get close enough to Scott to get his hands on him, Scott Steiner would always find a way to run away, or he would never give. Uh, if they were in a match together, he would never go in the ring whenever yeah. Rick Steiner was in there. So that was kind of the big build in this match. Also, let's talk about the lack of a selling job by Buff Bagwell to try and sell his fake arm or wrist injury. I'd- Prior to this, I mean, it was actually a comedy bit, of course, is what it was. But the tape job on that fake cast looked atrocious. They had the doctor, the the, the the Randy Savage doctor. J.J. Dillon's still around. He he makes an appearance to bring in a doctor from from Atlanta, you know, to to check on this Bagwell injury, and and of course it's fake, and it was it was funny for what it was. That tape job was so brutal. Yeah. Oh, I probably could I love have done the announcement. It. <laughs> and and that brings me to a good point. Tony like, how anything, good actually. of a three man, the only three man wrestling announced crew that I can listen to? Because right. usually when you got three people there, it's just chaos. But these three guys, Mike Tanay, Tony Schiavone, and Bobby the Brain, that I I thought they were a fantastic three man announced team. Mike Tenay is your technical guy. Uh, Tony Schiavone is your play-by-play guy, and then you have uh, the Brain just being, you know, his annoying self. He's never been different. Bobby the Brain has never been any different on commentary, in his manager work, any of that. He's so entertaining. He's one of the best as a manager for sure, and I loved him in WCW version as a commentator because he said hilarious things. He pointed out some significant flaws in people. And, and the company itself, like this, 
that's one thing I wanted to bring up during this review is that um, Heenan really started to you started to see the cracks in WCW. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heenan mentions a lot about kind of management and how things aren't pop, maybe things aren't being run how they should or you know maybe. You know, someone should speak up and say something because there was a couple times where Tony was trying to get him to be like, "Oh no, you probably shouldn't say that," and he was just like, "No, you know, they're, they're probably it. too they're probably too stupid to know what I'm saying anyway." <laughs> he wasn't it's wrong. like, "Oh, jeez, I know," and so that's why I feel like this was kind of like the beginning of the WCW downfall. Okay, this match here—it's a bit of a stinker for me though, Bubs. No, nothing really took off. It was very short. It ends via the the. Damn, Lex Luger in the, the torture oh, the rack. Torture uh, rack. The rack of Buff Bagwell, and it's it's over in I think five or six minutes is what it felt like. But yeah, uh, I, I I don't know. I didn't get anything out of it. It was a storyline push to continue the Steiner brother thing as well, but also to get some more exposure for NWO guys like Bagwell was. So eh, I was over it pretty quickly. You, you want to talk about being over something very quickly? The next unscheduled. You know, yeah. special special attraction for the fans. Unannounced things match. were going way unannounced match because I feel like the the card was going way faster than WCW expected it to. Right. So they had to fill some time real quick. Like, hey, we need seven minutes filled. Psychosis <laughs> and La Parka go out there and wrestle each other, and the crowd went silent. Yes. Nothing in this match was exciting to watch from a viewer standpoint at home. If I was in the crowd, I would have thought it was a stinker as well. Of course, a couple over-the-top rope jumping type angles from from these guys because they can both do that. Because that's an angle. Yeah, because that's something (laughs) the fans will get excited about. But I don't know. You're exactly right. It sounds like they're like, wow, every match was quicker than we wanted and expected it to be. So let's throw some stuff out there. Go, Go figure it out. And it it drew me down a bit from the high that I had been from the Steiner Bagwell match. Yeah. Now. You know, because that match was a barn burner, right? Uh, I had no, I had no opinion on this match. I didn't care about the finish. It, the match wasn't even done clean considering both these guys. Oh, um, I was over it quickly, but they, they definitely went, it was seven minutes. So yeah, that's yeah. longer than it needed to be. It definitely was. Uh, I, I love the psychosis guillotine leg drop. That's just a cool move. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was sloppy. And that's, that's what leads me to believe that this was, you know, thrown together. Like, Hey, thank God you two are here. Right. Thank go God out you there. showed up in Denver. Right. Yes. With your ring gear, go out and have a quick match. Cause that's all it was. Yep. It wasn't put together well and the crowd hated it or they were indifferent to it. I hated it. Yeah. And, uh, but psychosis beats La Parca, the chairman of yeah. WCW. <laughs> The crowd comes up pretty quickly, though, Bubs, because we finally get some uh, get some bigger names here finally popping out. We get the the tag match of the baseball bat via on a pole is where it was hanging yeah. way hanging way up there too, wasn't it? It was, was high. high. Like yes, Piper was like, climbing that thing to get. Hogan it. is six six, and he had to like wrap his legs, or or he's like six eight, and he had he's to big, yeah. get up there. Big names, though, here, Buzz. We got Hogan and Nash. They're going up against Piper and the Giant, the big show prior to. Mm-hmm. So, I, don't, I mean, and, the, a lot of storyline. This was very storyline-driven. Yes. Piper, though he may be considered easily as one of the greatest heels of all time, he's super face in this in this version here with the Giant. 
and the crowd, of course, slowly becoming very much against Hollywood Hogan and very pro Kevin Nash. So that was part of yes. this as well. So storyline driven, but a, a longer match. And it wasn't too bad, actually. No, it, it wasn't a bad match. It told a pretty decent story. And the entire buildup to, to or the entire show was building towards this match. Uh, what was going to happen? Was the NWO over? Was the NWO ready to implode? Uh, Kevin Nash had been teasing that he was kind of sick of Hogan and kind of his ways. Hogan even had his own NWO theme. Yeah. Uh, the Voodoo Child uh, theme song, which was a pretty, it was pretty cool, pretty cool theme song. But uh, yeah, things were, they were going in two opposite directions, like we alluded to earlier in the buildup. Um, like this is when, you know, NWO Wolfpack was created was kind of after this match because as you see in the match they they get the get the baseball bat and hogan actually hits kevin nash accidentally with the baseball bat Mm -hmm. and you know they end up winning the match but that that kind of moment leads to them you know arguing pushing and shoving at the end and then hogan actually decks kevin nash for real with the baseball bat. I like the baseball bat being being put into it. The storyline leading up was, of course, like you mentioned, Kevin Nash said he if he got a hold of it, he was going to hit everyone else with it, which included Hogan. And the match was – the giant was over. He was yes. he was over. And the crowd was really into Roddy Piper at this time because you have to love a guy like Piper regardless, face or heel. But him playing a face heel – or a face um, – persona here really worked out got the crowd really back into the whole pay-per-view i think because obviously big names by themselves in this match are going to do that but piper really heating up the crowd and getting the giant involved really really put the put a i guess a a peak to this a peak to the entire pay-per-view at this point and i was okay with with the finish hogan rarely will ever lose in any fashion even if he's not taking a pin so that's cool as well but storyline match for sure and, and the thing about this, you know, the Giant being so over, Roddy Piper being as over as a face as he was, is, you know, this is still kind of, you know, kayfabe is still still there. You know, the internet is, you know, really growing at this time. I was into the internet at this time, constantly looking up, you know, different things, trying to see uh, behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. But, you know, the kayfabe was still alive. Faces were still cheered. Uh, heels were still booed. The NWO, yes, had you know their marks that loved them, but they were the heels. People hated them. And this is a small venue. There was only 7,500 people there. So in those kind of intimate venues, you know the heels and faces are going to get the reactions that they should be getting. And so that really adds to the drama, adds to the emotions, and to the storyline that was being told. So when Hogan, Dex, Nash... You know, the crowd's even further behind Kevin Nash now because he was already starting to get, yeah. you know, big face reactions. Now, after that, Hogan's definitely getting booed. So NWO Hollywood is going to be booed while the Wolfpack is going to be, you know, become this big face group. Right. And from the, from the, the breakaway of them coming into two separate groups, I think that was done very well to use a guy like Kevin Nash, who was always seen as a guy who could certainly lead any group. Hogan was always the default leader of the NWO, but Nash had a great following in WWF when he came over. He was a long time running champion in the nineties. 
So it's great for them when they decided to go black and white versus black and red. The two leaders were certainly chosen correctly from that yes. perspective. Hogan was always going to be a leader, but he can just he can be a heel. He really can, even though he's probably the biggest face, certainly in the nineties at least. And I don't know. In in the long run, I wish it could have went a little differently, but it didn't. And this match was from a card making perspective, I'm actually glad they put this match number eight and didn't force the big names down our throat by putting it number nine or even number ten, because they certainly could have done that. They left the championship match. Oh, this was a, definitely if this was in you know modern time WWE, that's the main event. I know, and I, I love this this time because that happens there and then your mid card title is your second to last match. I love that yes. booking. I love the respect given to Raven, Raven. and DDP for going on second to last with that title. It absolutely is, is grand. So from a card creation standpoint, this card is actually very well created. And that that can actually move us on, Bubs, to that number nine match with the, one of your dudes, for sure, Raven, and a guy yes. in DDP who was – he became so oddly over. I was never a fan. He was everyone's dude. I, he was, I digged DDP. I was diamond cutting him. my pillows yeah. left and right. I would give a mean diamond cutter. Right. And I was, I of course enjoyed him, but he was never my guy. I had a handful of other guys, but the shit that he did really drew people in and he was certainly a fan favorite. And this match was yep. not bad at all. A lot of flock involved, a lot of flock involved. To, well, to it was get, a Ravens rules match. It was. So it could, it could happen anyway. And we, this match spilled out to the ringside at, toward the entrance area. Some hay bells were involved. I think the stagecoach was also involved. I think it was a DDP that jumped off the stagecoach. <laughs> Onto Raven. Um, it was entertaining. There was a it was a lot of chaos in this match, um, but it, it it was a very good DDP. It was almost impossible for him to have a bad match, and most of that was because of how heavily scripted he he had his matches. You know, he was notorious for having pages worth of notes on you know scripting every single thing, which is something that you know he most likely got. From Randy Savage, because Randy Savage is also, he was also He's known for that. A bit of an originator of that, yeah. Yes. And so, and there was a funny story about DDP having a match with Chris Benoit and spending, you know, all day trying to find Chris to give him the notes. And Benoit just spent all day just uh, <laughs> trying to hide from him, avoiding him. And then when DDP finally, you know, cornered him, he took the pages and just ripped them up in his face. It's just like, all right, let's go have a match. Love it. But yeah, DDP was, I loved him. Every Really, yeah, everyone him. was loving DDP around that. He was like 38, 39 at this time. He was not mm -hmm. a spring chicken. No. I yes. love the spot where he has Kidman on his uh, on his shoulders in the fireman carry position and turns it into oh, and the, diamond, the cutter. diamond cutter. Because that was the thing, DDP. How many ways could DDP hit you with the yeah. diamond cutter? That was kind of his gimmick. This and is which... the early version of the RKO out of nowhere. Yes. <laughs> Where can it get you from? I, I loved it. Um, surprising that Raven won the U.S. title. Uh, of course, we know why. Uh, we know because why, yes. they did not want DDP to be dropping it to Goldberg. They had instead the next night Raven dropping it to Goldberg. And, you know, watching that match, the crowd was hot for that match. There was a yeah. lot of flock in that match, and Goldberg was just spearing people left and right. Right. You have you have to add that context into this match because a lot of people are going to look at this and say, well, why would DDP be beaten by Raven? DDP was certainly higher on the card 
and the rankings over a guy like Raven, but you have to think long-term because the title was going to Goldberg, and you have to protect a guy like DDP. You can't have him being buried. You really can't have, have him being beaten clean because you're going to continue to push him as a top face in the company. He gets himself up into that world title picture rather quickly. So it's smart to have Raven hold it for 24 hours, less than that or whatever it was, <laughs> because he's a guy who can drop it regardless of all the Raven's flock um, interference. Goldberg's going to overcome that. So very smart booking. I like the match as well. I like I like Raven winning. That's completely fine because DDP goes on to other bigger and better things, and yes. overall it's pretty entertaining. And this was the only time Raven held a singles title within WCW, Yeah, which is a fun fact. Um, he didn't like his run in WCW. A lot of people that came from other, like definitely people who came from ECW hated working WCW. Um, but yeah, very, it's a shame that this was his only singles title win and it only lasted one day as great of a character as Raven is. You could put a title on him, mm -hmm. a mid card title and just kind of let him, you know, build it. He was a, he was like the Miz of that time. You know, he he's yeah. someone who could put credibility. You know, surprisingly, can build credibility for a title. And he was one of the better leaders of any, I think, um, group or stable, really. And it's kind of underlooked as well because he had a bunch of nobodies that really were with him because the flock was a bunch of no names outside of Kidman. So, and he was a tremendous wrestler well, in his Kidman own. Kidman was a no name before he he was he joined the flock though. But even looking yeah. back, you really can't name anybody else that you can remember outside of Kidman. And Raven's no. run in ECW was much better. And you know, WCW was um, and maybe an experience. Even his WWF run, he he was a twenty-one-time hardcore champion. <laughs> all, all those title trends. The most good, decorated good singles competitor Easily. of all. <laughs> Big fan of Raven, though, Bubs. As are you. We loved him. We've talked about him a lot in our ECW conversations in the mid and late nineties as well. Him and the so. franchise. Two yep. best things about ECW. Top things in ECW for sure. So let's move that, Bubs. Let's talk about the main event now. The match became a no-DQ match. Um, at the beginning of the card, they announced it, that um, Sting would be defending his WCW world title against Savage and no-DQ rules. So at that time, I I did not remember this match. When, when I started rewatching this the other day, I did not at all remember what happened. And... If you remember watching it live, because I do remember watching parts of this on pay-per-view with a friend of mine in 98, I was thinking to myself, what's going to happen? Is somebody going to get involved, or can this match end clean? And then, as long as you always remember that if someone's involved with the NWO, there's probably going to be interference on the heel side of things. And in this case, it's Kevin Nash in the long run, right? But also some Hogan yes. as well. Hogan kind of causes the actual or the, the initial pin that Savage could have had over Sting. But uh, from the beginning of the card, Bubs, were you thinking like, oh, I can't wait for the interference to come because there's no way this match will end clean? Um, you, you always know, especially like you said, when NWO is involved, you hit the nail right on the head like you usually do when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, if someone in the NWO is involved, look at the entire night. All the matches had some interference when the NWO was involved in some form of fashion. You had, you know, in, in the Hogan-Nash match, you had the Disciple show up to help them, you know, get that win with the with the fake bat. Well, not the fake bat, but an alternate, alternate bat. bat. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, you, 
you knew going in something was going to happen, but Sting is also someone who has fought off the NWO before, and you didn't really feel like, you know, if he was the champion going in, I didn't think that, you know, he would end up losing. Right. Uh, Especially but, when both of these guys come in as as face, because Sting has rarely ever yes. been booed or even hated, because he's the long he's he's the WCW guy, right? He's the he's the picture of what WCW always was. And Savage associated with with um, Kevin Nash on the Red and Black Wolfpack side, he was getting all kinds of cheers as well. Savage so was in the in the best, probably one of the best runs of his career. This at this time, yeah, yeah. Like he he definitely had a, a rejuvenation, a renaissance of his singles career. Uh, this was some of his best stuff. So yeah, they were both going in red hot, uh, both going in as faces. So yeah. you, you really didn't know what was going to happen here. Right, and then of course when Hogan can, it, it's a play to keep to get more heat on Hogan. The way he interferes in the match, he actually pushes Savage off the top rope when he's going for the the elbow. I think is what it was when Sting was laying on the ground, which you know, gets towards the end of the match and the actual finish with Kevin Nash dropping the jackknife on Sting. So overall the match was, I mean, I, I wasn't disappointed by any means. No, it, it wasn't going to be a barn burner. No, but Savage's I'm style just... has never been something that I can just, I'm just glued to the TV on because it's not fast. It is very methodical, but there's methodical is the word. There is a lack of, I guess, entertainment in the style by itself because he relies on a one top rope move and his character to get him over. He's very charismatic and he uses that to play into things as does Sting. He can incite the crowd. He uses this thing or splash and stuff like that to get the crowd involved. So the styles were, were slower paced. So you're not sitting there like just glued into it. If anything, you were glued for the storyline purposes because you're waiting like, okay, someone's got to come out. Something has to happen. What's the yes. finish here? Which is kind of how we sit now in WWE pay-per-views like, all right, there's got to be interference. There's got to yes. be Dean Ambrose. When's Roman going to turn heel? Someone's turning heel, and then you don't get it, right? <laughs> but back then, no. you knew you were getting it because at NWO, you were getting some storyline pluses and pushes in every match. And that's what it leads to, Bubs. We get, we get that interference towards the end there. I've long said this about Sting, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, and I'm not saying this as an indictment to Sting. He has been one of my top, you know, childhood heroes, you know, in wrestling, especially the the Crow Sting. But he isn't all that great in the ring. His style has never been exciting. He's always been the guy who has he. People always talk about John Cena and his five moves of doom. Sting always had the overhead press slam. Um, Ric Flair would get on the top rope, and then he would grab him and toss him off. And Flair he never jumped off the rope. Flair never made it. <laughs> he Flair would do that about twelve times a match. Um, you know, he would do the stinger splash. He would, you know, woo to the crowd, and that was that was pretty much it when it came to Sting. He he did not have a um, incredible move set. He he wasn't very diverse in his offense, but it was his a lot with Savage, like you said, it was his character and his charisma that that really got him over. Yeah, and we get to see some Miss Elizabeth as well in here. They continue that 
storyline that was always used by the WWF in the early 90s. She's in here as well. She takes a bump. She takes a stinger splash there towards the end of the match as well. Um, I didn't really like that. I found that, kind of found that a little bit unnecessary from storyline purposes. But the end-all be-all was to make sure that we get interference from Nash and from mm-hmm. Hogan. We do get that, and we get our favorite referee of all time, Charles Robinson, actually gets knocked out. Yes. He, gets, he finally Little gets en- enough to call the three, and we do get a new champ, Bubs. It is a Randy Savage win here to kind of move on. Again, WCW or NWO driven storyline win for him to progress into the next night into uh, Monday Nitro here, Bubs. Yeah, uh, and yet another match where we get a title change, but only for that new champion to hold the title. Uh, let's see, in the you know maybe you know a stone's throw, a stone's uh, throw. Yeah, like you blink and then boom, Hogan's the champ. You blink a, and then boom, I think a stone Goldberg's is a measure the... of distance. Oh my! I'm measuring it with time now. It, okay, it's, we'll count it for time. Complicated a time. and convoluted. You wouldn't yeah, understand. It's a, it's a European model we're working with here, so you guys get it. Yeah, it's the, it's the imperial. No, the metric system. Met, the, metric we system. We use the imperial. I'm the idiot here. Either way, <laughs> what, what you're trying to say is it, yeah. it progresses to Nitro. Please tell me what I'm loss. trying to say. It's a whole yes. Hogan involvement, right? Get us there, Bubs. Yes. Uh, yes, the next night on Raw. No, Jesus <laughs> Christ, on Nitro. He's falling apart, folks. No, uh, this is not Nitro, good. I am like Springs, late 90s Denver. WCW right now. I'm just falling apart. No, oh, God. Uh, but yes, um, Savage drops the title to Hogan. The next night on Nitro, which then you know would later lead to Goldberg and Hogan having their uh, big Nitro the Atl- match. The Atlanta match. Yes. That's but, all I got. <laughs> okay, that, that was good because that, that continues the storyline from there. But like you said, we did this pay-per-view for a reason because this really starts the, the true separation of the NWO, which is significant yes. from WCW's booking because – the NWO storyline had been the thing that they had clinged to for the majority of the um, of the wrestling wars with WWE. So them branching this off into something else, and it's even interesting that something that I always always overlooked. So many of the and the majority of actually pay per views for WCW were co branded WCW NWO, meaning that there was an intentional split already. That there were WCW wrestlers and there were NWO wrestlers. Something that we kind of always overlooked. Two separate so rosters, very like very on separate Smackdown. rosters, right? Huge things that they co branded because that's how big. Hogan had made his NWO, so it played perfectly into his heel his heel character for that to get us to black and white versus black and red, and this was really the start of it, and it leads to great things for the Outsiders and the Wolfpack itself, and right. some some good things, of course, that get us into '99 and parts of 2000. But of course, like you're saying, this is a an, an initial a scratch of the surface where it's kind of the downfall, like you're saying. Yeah, and you know. Like you said, the Wolf Pack, how it was introduced, was fantastic. Um, I know I was a Wolf Pack follower. I didn't like the black and white. I loved the red and black. Uh, you needed someone. So you had Kevin Nash kind of as the catalyst for the the red and black. But they also needed someone like a Randy Savage to kind of be there. So you've got Hogan on one side, and you've got Savage and Nash on the other side. 
And, you know, what kind of bigger names do you have than those three, mm-hmm. especially at this time? So uh, it, it was just the perfect way to kind of because the NWO storyline was it was definitely it, it's run it, it. It had run its course at this time. There there needed to be some separation. There needed to be some dissension within mm-hmm. the NWO. And, you know, this to me, this was a great way to do that. Oh, it certainly worked out, and I really liked it because this got us the Wolfpack, and many of us are huge Wolfpack fans. You still see red and black NWO t-shirts in crowds today, more so in indie circuit world because of, you know, too sweetness, but that's okay. I really like the the pay-per-view from the standpoint of, one, it was structured correctly, but two, it really started that actual separation of what, what led to something good for a short amount of time, which was two separate NWOs, clashes from that angle, big names over here, like you're saying, Savage and, and Nash and Scott Hall, of course, was in that as well, versus Hogan and all of his followers to include something we've overlooked, bubs. Let's get it in real quick. Brutus, yes. the Barber Beefcake. I, I mentioned it briefly. Let's, with let's, the let's dis- plug it real quick. Let's get in here and talk with about it. With the Disciple... Um, what a look, though, better that look. he had. Real a much look. better look. He had the beard going, the, the Every, greasy hair. inside. Yes, everyone had sunglasses. And, you know, everyone in the NWO went for that biker look. They, like, they almost did, like it was the, a precursor to Aces and Eights. Yeah, everyone was... Trying, trying to be jacked and super tan. Look at Buff Bagwell as a perfect example of trying to mirror Ugh, a Hulk Hogan look. To. You have to because he was there, Bubs. He was, he was Buff. Buff he was, stuff, he was the stuff. The, yes. yeah. And the disciple, we made fun of on several occasions actually of how close of friends he and Hogan are, right? And the coattails yes. that he hung on to. This was another perfect example of him in better character, I do think, in both look okay. and, and just character. But always right behind Hogan, being his his bodyguard or his protector, whatever you want to say, that always had his back. And kudos to no a matter guy, though. What. Kudos to a guy for having a good career by having the best friend that you want to have, bubs. Yes. If John Cena had a best friend in the wrestling industry, he could have made himself a, a prominent, important he, he's person. Called, he's called Daniel Bryan, bubs. <laughs> and Bryan made his own success. The he he did, but beefcake and the disciple not so much. But no. I, we had to plug it because I told you as soon as I noticed him, I started laughing uh, and thinking, "Man, we talked about some early WrestleManias where this guy." I couldn't way wait too high to talk to you when I, when I saw him. I was like, for a while, I was standing there like, like who is that? And then they oh, you didn't remember. I could not put oh, a finger no. on it, that and I'm just beefcake. staring at this guy like. <laughs> Who is this random ass NWO guy? NWO always have like the strangest people. Yeah. Then they said the disciple, and I was just like, "Oh shit, that's the Brutus. That's Beefcake. That's the cake right there." Yes. A lot of big oh. names in in the NWO, Bob Scott Norton getting a lot of love on commentary as well, just like the disciple throughout this pay per view. So big names all around, guys that made huge success. But um, let's hope that the bullet club maybe learns from the mistakes of their predecessor that they try to mirror, I guess. I mean, they're about to have their own show. They are all in all is actually in. looking very good. NWO sold out and Oh, careful now. Let's man. I'm just saying it's, it's getting, are we going to get the bullet club red and black? <laughs> oh God. I mean, don't act like it wouldn't sell t-shirts though. Cause people would pick oh, Cody and people would, would pick Kenny. But so did, so did the Wolfpack. 
Yeah. Okay. People, people still drew on NWO Hollywood too, for some reason. Yeah. I was very much against that. But, um, it, but it worked. All in all, what would you grade this pay per view? This is a B minus. Okay, B minus. I, I say I say B minus because I, I can't help it. I mean, I love card structure. I love how things are built, and if they're built the correct way, I'm going to give it a plus already. So some good mid card work, Booker T and Benoit. The Jericho okay. match was not bad at all, and the overall booking from top to bottom was very good. Storyline progression, even though I wanted a better match as my main event, I'll still say that this was the. As storyline driven, I'll say this is that B minus C plus area for a time. Okay. Yeah, I think B plus is a little high. I would definitely say C plus, uh, mostly on the back of Booker T and Chris Benoit's great match, uh, the Ultimo Dragon and Chavo Guerrero having a good match. Other than that, the card just kind of fell flat to me. Uh, a lot of it was just, and WCW never gave enough attention to their pay per views which was a huge uh, issue that they had. So the pay-per-views were always just a, a build-up to a Nitro. Yeah. And that's what this was, was just a build-up to the next night. So it's like a pay-per-view was an afterthought. It's like, oh, shit, we have a pay-per-view today. Let's go ahead and book that real quick. Hurry up. LaParka, get in here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> LaParka, are you here? Uh, do, you, do you have any other luchador here with you? Yes. We'll y'all make y'all that travel happen. together, right? Yes. Of course That's they how do. they think. Stereotypes. Okay. Yes. Um, but yeah, I would give it a C plus and you know, it, it could have been so much better. Now, what would you rate spring stampede 1998? Have you watched it anytime recently? Because Chris and I would definitely challenge you to go out and, and watch some of these older pay-per-views like we love to do. Uh, but yeah, start out with Spring Stampede 1998 and tell us what you think. You can tell us what you think on Facebook at Collar and Elbow Wrestling. You can also find us on Twitter at CAE Wrestling, while also not only downloading us on iTunes, but also on Google Play and Stitcher Radio. And just tell your friends. Tell them to, to download the podcast and join the conversation with us. We'll, we'll give you shout-outs on the show. We'll you know respond to any kind of messages you send us or anything you tag us in online. We love talking to the fans. Anyway, we are the Collar and Elbow Wrestling Podcast. We love all of you, the fans. And together, we can make wrestling great again. See you guys next time.